Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Rob Bluey and I am the Vice President of Communications here at Heritage and Executive Editor of The Daily Signal. Uh, as a courtesy to our speaker today, I'd like to ask that you silence your cell phones, although don't turn them off because we do encourage you to tweet and share on social media about uh, today's program. Uh, help us spread the word. Uh, we are streaming it on Twitter and YouTube, so you can find uh, it on the Heritage feed on both of those uh, channels and platforms. Uh, to introduce our, our guest today, uh, Marvin Olasky is a prolific writer and an accomplished editor. Uh, we're proud to welcome him back to the Heritage Foundation, where he is a former visiting fellow uh, and, uh, and somebody who's a close friend of our organization. Uh, he's the author of more than 25 books, including his latest, Reforming Journalism, which he will discuss with us today. Marvin's Political journey is quite unique uh, as he became an atheist and a Marxist in high school and went on to join the Communist Party in the early 1970s. Um, it was well at the, he was at the University of Michigan working on his PhD that he had a spiritual awakening and was baptized into the Presbyterian Church in 1976. He later became the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas in 1992. After college, he taught journalism for more than 25 years at the University of Texas at Austin and became a reporter for the Yale Daily News and the Boston Globe. His first book garnered him significant attention uh, and also caught the eye of the Bradley Foundation, which supported his visiting fellowship right here at the Heritage Foundation for two years. Uh, one of his most well-known works is The Tragedy of American Compassion, which transformed him into a leader in the Christian conservative political thought movement. Uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, distributed to every Republican member of the House at the time. Uh, it's also what inspired the phrase compassionate conservatism. Marvin was instrumental in the success of the World Journalism Institute, which he is now the dean of, and he, the Institute uh, seeks to recruit and train Christian journalists and inject them into the mainstream media, and we certainly do need that. He's the editor-in-chief of World, which is a multimedia news organization that reports from a Christian worldview. You can follow him on Twitter, at Marvin Olasky. Uh, as I mentioned, his most recent book is titled Reforming Journalism. It's been described as a faith-filled history of journalism, and it includes useful tips on news writing and advice on advocating conservative convictions and mediums that are traditionally dominated by the left. As somebody who went to journalism school myself and spent time as a reporter and editor here in Washington, uh, I've enjoyed reading it and I highly recommend it to you. We have copies for sale uh, as you leave the auditorium today in the lobby. Uh, now, uh, to tell us more about reforming journalism, I'd like to welcome Marvin Olasky. Well, thank you, Rob. 
Thank you all for coming today. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to be back at Heritage. I really spent the most productive research year of my life here in 1989-1990. This building was the, was the base for my trips to the Library of Congress about five blocks away. And um, it was fun, literally blowing the dust off 19th century records in the stacks of the library. And that research turned into the tragedy of American compassion. Uh, people say it made a difference in the drive for welfare reform in the mid-1990s. I like to think that change helped several million people uh, move from the welfare roles into productive work. Uh, so I'm grateful to Heritage for that contribution to fighting poverty in America. Uh, Arthur Brooks, friend of mine, who was the former head of AEI, once said he got, uh, he got Barack Obama's jaw to drop when Arthur told him, I'm a conservative because I care about helping the poor. And your great president, Kay James, uh, could say the same. So yeah, I am grateful to Heritage for spending that year here with the nefarious background that, uh, that Rob referred to. Um, back in the 1970s, I thought I was pretty smart. I had high SAT scores, a Yale diploma, some work in big-time journalism. Um, I was a, basically a left-wing protester invited into the halls of power. And I was so smart that I did one of the stupidest things anyone could do. I joined the Communist Party, as Rob said. And then purely, really purely through God's grace, I came out of it. And in retrospect, it was actually a, a beneficial experience for me. Not sure for others, but for me it was because it made me realize really how stupid I am. And that's an important thing, I think, for all of us to, to come to mind. It helped me to understand that other people also considered smart or also stupid. Um, I started wondering about where I could go to find true wisdom. I became skeptical of existential subjectivity and the, and the lack of humility that typifies journalism and typifies me as well when I'm not careful. And that brings me to today's subject. In September, Steve Bannon, you've heard of him, the former Trump aide, spoke to a conservative group in St. Louis. He asked, do you think it's been unpleasant and nasty to date? You haven't seen anything. The 2020 campaign will go down as the most vitriolic and nastiest in American history. It's very simple. We win, we save the country. Well, no, we do not. Uh, we do not win, we do not save the country if we win by escalating anger. Whoever on the left or on the right wins by that sword will eventually die by it. And, you know, just a little history, since this is what I uh, was studied, I studied a lot. Uh, the United States really has been exceptional. I know there's a debate about that. Of, of all the revolutions I've studied, the American Revolution is the only one that did not become disastrous. Revolutions in France, Russia, which I became familiar with in my communist days, China, Cuba, Cambodia, other countries, they all started with ideals that quickly became idols. And that could happen here, not, not next year, I don't think, not, you know, probably, probably not in the next decade, but could happen. I visited Argentina last month with its cycles of inflation. Um, that could happen here. We could become even like Venezuela, where class warfare has hurt all classes. And journalism bathed in vitriol is now part of the problem. So if we keep escalating, our cultural decay, our eventual debt-driven national bankruptcy will lead more people to go from fierce words to sticks and stones. Um, the old objectivity never was all that good. It certainly doesn't work now. Uh, other alternatives. And so I'd like to lay out nine suggestions based, I hope, in biblical teaching 
that might help us make journalism part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I do want to stress that these suggestions grew out of my work at World when I was at Heritage 30 years ago. I walked over to Union Station one evening and met with Joel Bells, who founded World in 1986. I joined the Board of Directors in 1990 and started editing it in 1992. And I suspect that was the, I did that because that was the way the Board of Directors knew they could kick me off the board uh, and, just, and just be more active, perhaps, in, in other types of mischief. But we have grown at a time when other journalistic enterprises are shrinking. So these nine suggestions I'm going to make, they're not just theoretical constructs. We've road tested them over the years, and we've learned that they work. So number one, uh, do journalism at street level, not sweet level. Everyone has opinions. It's easy to sit at our computers in air-conditioned offices and pontificate. At World, we've tried to emphasize really tough, time-consuming, street-level reporting. We like being flies on the wall, watching and listening. We don't want to make ourselves the center of attention and action. We especially don't want to make ourselves the apparent font of wisdom. We like to go out and report. And reporting has fallen into rare circumstances these days. Uh, there's so much opinion journalism, there's very little reporting. People actually listening, paying attention, watching, describing. That's number one. Number two, sprinkle salt, not sugar. Some of you here may work in corporate public relations departments. I, I did that for, for five years. Um, some of you are in nonprofit offices or congressional suites. I've had some experience there. And I know that the job for people in that situation is to make your organization or your boss look good. I, I did some of that. Uh, I worked at, at DuPont for five years. Again, it was, it was great educationally and, and financially. But the task really was to hand out sugar, uh, sweet statements that sometimes covered up the truth. And that's not good journalism. And sometimes people are forgetting the divide between good journalism of actually going out and really trying to honestly report what's going on, what's going on without doing it in a way that's designed to popularize, publicize a particular group or organization or individual. And sugar isn't very helpful either. It just gives us sugar fixes. It, these sweet statements often cover up the truth. It's not good journalism. At World, we try to be salt. Uh, salt adds taste. It's also a preservative. That's our goal, and that makes us unpopular in certain quarters, uh, including sometimes certain conservative quarters, because, well, uh, number three, we try to avoid entangling alliances. Uh, we can be salt, not sugar, because we don't have to scratch the backs of other organizations, even when they scratch ours. World, I mean, I, yes, I, I, am, I am, I hope, a Christian first, a conservative second, but I am a conservative. World largely can be the same way, but it's not part of the conservative movement. Uh, we are not part of the evangelical movement either. Uh, we can and we do criticize other groups. More than 20 years ago, 23 years ago, actually, World, World was a member of the Evangelical Press Association. We learned that the EPA Code of Ethics prohibited criticism of other EPA members. That made it a mutual protection society. And sometimes organizations, our organizations, conservative or Christian, sometimes are. Uh, we resigned from that EPA. We've tried to avoid such entanglements ever since. So independence is really, is really important. Number four, we like to publish sensational facts, but we try to use understated prose. Much of journalism has become like a movie franchise, Scream 1, Scream 2, Scream 3, and so forth. Uh, people who get paid by clicks create clickbait. 
That's not healthy for consumers or producers. We do have lots of sensational news, a world we try to tell it, not scream it. And that's also very different, sadly, from a lot of journalism these days. And number five, we try to remember the theological reason for not screaming. The sky is not falling because God holds up the sky. We had a flood a long time ago. God promised not to send another one. This year is the 75th year since we invented nuclear bombs and used two of them on Japan. It is absolutely miraculous that during decades of Cold War, we did not have a nuclear war. There were times we came close. I'm not aware of any time in human history that a massively effective new weapon hasn't been used for such a long time. I mean, that's amazing. Um, it's, it's, it's not natural, it's almost supernatural. And when I think of this, I really am filled with thanksgiving, and you should be too. Um, you know, God is so great that we can't get our arms around him, but he's clearly had his arms around us. Nearly 500 years ago, John Calvin wrote about how we ought to gaze upon God's works that we may be restored by his goodness. And with all the rotten stuff that goes on, still, amazingly, we haven't had the disaster that I think anyone would have predicted we would have had by now. Uh, I looked at predictions back in the first decade of the century, and people were predicting that there'd be nuclear bombs smuggled in, and, and people were even giving odds, better than 50%, that we would have a nuclear incident in this country sometime in the next five or 10 years. Well, that hasn't happened, and I guess we keep praying that it hasn't happened. Uh, but God's work keeping us from killing each other with death toll in the billions is really a miracle of mercy. Um, my apologies for preaching. Do I, do I hear an amen from anyone? <laughs> All right. Um, okay, six. Now that I've moved into, the, into theology, let me wade into some deeper water. Um, you may know the truth sung by Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Beliefs of some kind, also known as worldviews, direct all reporting and writing. Sometimes in a very implicit way, sometimes explicitly, but the, not even the simplest story is without some degree of a position on something. When firefighters fight fire, we cheer for the firefighters, not the fire. Uh, when, when we have discoveries that help people fight cancer, we are glad of those discoveries. We're not cheering for the cancer. And these days, a lot of people think that uh, stuff that used to be popularly understood is actually social cancer of some kind. Well, we're not cheering for the social cancer either. But all reporting, in some ways, is directed reporting. Um, in the 20th century, some journalists pushed back against what used to be called objectivity, um, and some still argued that in objective reporting, the reporter could function like, like a camera. But people increasingly understood, we certainly did, people in journalism certainly did, that what a camera shows depends on where we point it, what kind of lens and film you have, and so on. And so to update the metaphor, you, you are more than your smartphone, or your smartphone records, depends on where you're standing, where you point it, when you turn it on, when you turn it off, you decide which photos and sound to keep or show or play back. When, when covering stories, reporters decide all the time what's most important to present and what to ignore. Okay, beliefs, judgments, ideologies direct those decisions, directed reporting. So what does that mean? Does that mean it's hopeless, that we just, it's just everything's opinion? Well, not exactly. Now, in feature stories, particularly the, the choice of a protagonist, an antagonist, mission obstacles, we call this PAMO when we're running our World Journalism Institute in all stories. 
least feature stories and even simple stories have protagonist, antagonist, mission obstacles. The basic structure of a story is someone does something because, but, and then you have the tension that comes in. Again, reporters decide who the someone is, what the something is, what the but represents, and worldviews are important. And that, again, I stress that because this leads to almost sometimes people throwing up their hands. Okay, we don't, if conventional objectivity certainly doesn't work, then it's all subjective, right? It's opinion. Well, this brings us to point number seven here in World's Mission Statement. We try to provide biblically objective journalism that informs, educates, and inspires. Biblical objectivity. It's so different from the conventional notion of objectivity that some people have a hard time getting their arms around it. So I'll try to explain. For 23 years now, I've owned and mostly lived in a tall house on a hillside in Texas. Um, except being Texas, it's called uh, Edwards Mountain. It's a hill. Uh, the house sways slightly when heavy winds hit. And that initially made me nervous. It's pretty tall, and you can be on the top floor. You, you, you feel some movement. But the builder of the house lived next door. So I could actually ask him about the construction. And he showed me it was pretty solid and hasn't fallen down yet. He knew how the house was made because he had made it. Journalists conventionally throughout the 20th century and still these days sometimes describe objectivity as getting opinions A, B, and C then quoting them equally. But say my neighbor down the street says my house will fall down if the wind gets to 10 miles an hour. And maybe a neighbor across the street says, well, it's made of kryptonite and it would re reject uh, an attack even by Superman. And there may be a third neighbor on the other side says, my house is made of cheese, it will fall apart in a hurricane, but don't worry because I can eat my way out of it. If I quote all their opinions equally, will I have an objective story? Well, no. Even if they were all experts and not slightly nutty, I'm speaking generically, not of my particular neighbors, uh, I still would not have an objectively accurate story because they don't know, the, they don't know my house the way my builder knows the house. So a balancing of subjectivities does not give us an objective answer. What does? Well, God is the builder of the house we all live in. He gave us the Bible, which explains how the house was made and what it's made of. I believe that only God knows the true objective nature of things. And I didn't always believe this. I had to come to learn it through some hard things that were hard but useful. I believe that his book, the Bible, is the only completely objective and accurate view of the world which means the only true objectivity is biblical objectivity. Now, do I expect others to believe that? Probably not, unless, unless God impresses that upon them the way he impressed it upon me all these years ago. Um, and happily, he does that for millions of people. Why he doesn't do it for everyone, I don't know. That's the way it is. Um, if any of you have seen the, the weird but wonderful movie Field of Dreams, some people cannot see the baseball players, but they're still there. So what do we do? How do we sort out when what's real, what's not, what's true, what's not? Here's, this leads to number eight. This is our technique here. It's a metaphor, Whitewater Rapids. Our business office is in Asheville, North Carolina. And so uh, there are good Whitewater Rapids about 40 or so miles west of it. Uh, when we had our World Journalism Institute classes there, we would sometimes take our students out to it, uh, and we would go down the rapids with them, about 25 students at a time, maybe in about six rubber boats. And when I captained one of the rubber boats, because I was the only one there who had some experience, 
I was such a poor captain that I was constantly running it under bushes and under trees and so forth. And everyone ended up in the water at some point. And one, and one potential reporter ended up in the middle saying, let me out, let me out, which we eventually did. And she did not really make it as a reporter. Um, Whitewater Rapids, practicing biblical objectivity. It's a shorthand for us, and we actually use it. We have, we have our reporters all over the country and a couple in Africa and Asia and so forth. And so we get together on conference calls every couple of weeks. And as we're discussing stories and how to approach them, who's going to be our protagonist, our antagonist, and so forth, um, we actually use this rapids as a, as a shorthand. Because uh, people who know Whitewater Rapids talk about six, six kinds of rapids. Number one is sort of gently down the stream. Anyone can do it. I mean, I am capable of doing a number three. Number six is going over a waterfall. And unless you're a real expert, you're probably going to die. So best to avoid. Uh, class one. Class one is where the Bible takes an explicit position so it's easy to follow along. I mean, for example, adultery is wrong. So in a story, let's say, about sexual practices, we would not make an adulterer a hero. And again, I want to emphasize that taking a strong position where God takes one does not give us leeway to misquote our opponents or mischaracterize them or ridicule them. God's a God of truth. He does not require our public relations help. But nevertheless, here's a clear position, and that will influence the way we tell the story. Class two, the Bible takes an implicit position. For example, uh, parents are responsible for the godly education of the children. So we do support Bible-based schooling at home in private schools or in public schools if the parents think that's best for their particular situation. But we don't think those schools should pretend that God doesn't exist. I mean, that's not neutral, pretending that God doesn't exist. That's taking a very definite position. So in class two, again, we will take a position, but it's we may not be as Strongly, we will certainly acknowledge, as we always do, alternatives, but we'll still say there's something that the Bible shows us is right and something wrong in this. Class three, partisans on both sides can quote scripture verses, so only careful study through the Bible leads to biblical conclusions. Uh, for example, one of the things we try to do at World, we, we talk about showing concern for the uns, the unborn, the uneducated, the unemployed, the unsafe, the unchurched, the unfashionable. But what's most important is not whether we feel righteous, it's whether we are helping or hurting. Since all people are made in God's image with the capacity to be creative and productive to a greater or lesser extent, uh, I think we find from both biblical teaching and experience that payments encouraging people not to work are often harmful rather than helpful. And we'll come at it that way. And we'll acknowledge this is a, this is a hard thing. You know, You know, what we do when... There's a person uh, at Union Station asking for, for money to give, to not, not to give. I mean, this is, this is hard, and it requires experience and discernment, and still we probably get it wrong a lot of times. But we would still say there is, a, there is biblical teaching here that's very useful on this. And then we come to class four, where there's no clear biblical path. We can bring to bear a significant historical experience and a biblical understanding of human nature. I mean, for example, we should not trust tyrants to... Um, to honor, to honor peace treaties. I mean, we see teaching from the Bible about, about being suspicious in those circumstances, and history shows that as well. And certainly from my own Communist Party experience, I, I learned that personally. Class five, there's no clear historical or psychological trail, but there's some experience that leads us to be wary. Um, you know, I, I can choose one particular example because we're sitting here just off Capitol Hill, we should not expect efficiency from big bureaucracies. There's something we learn from history and human nature that 
that something something's gained, but something's lost in that in that process. And we should not be surprised when we make we have big plans and big projects, and they actually turn out to be harmful rather than helpful. And then class six again. These are this is like the going over the waterfall rapids. We're on our own. I mean, for example, uh, specific foreign policy matters or foreign trade agreements. Uh, you know, we we class six rapids. We we will balance different perspectives, and our coverage might be similar to that of a traditional AP story before the AP became very politicized. But a generation ago, you would see that balancing of subjectivities in the Associated Press story. And we will do that also. We won't be very different from, from that, that traditional approach because we don't know. And we try hard not to either uh, overuse or underuse scripture. Um, I'll tell you, when I, when I first became a Christian uh, in 1976, one of the first things I saw, I went into uh, the church starting to go to, and there was a, uh, a group that was raiding members of Congress on their votes. And whether these were, you know, good people based on the Bible or evil people, one of the one of the questions was: Should the U.S. relinquish control of the Panama Canal? Uh, and if you were against that, you were on God's side. If you were for that, you were on Satan's side, or something like that. And that, I, even then, I could see this is pretty silly. There is no, unless I've missed it, there is no book of the Panama Canal in the Bible, and it doesn't tell us what to do in some situations like that. Great discernment is necessary. We won't, we won't pretend to say we know what to do. We may sometimes give our opinion, but we say, you know, we don't know. We're very fallible. We're not experts. So classification this way, and we use it. I mean, we've been using it for 20 years. I think it helps us to avoid overusing the Bible, which is a tendency among some theological conservatives, or underusing it, which is a tendency among some theological liberals. So we do try to take strong stands where the Bible is clear, we avoid doing so when the Bible isn't. And we have the opportunity to get things right by trying to practice biblical objectivity. But, you know, Christians are not immune to the temptations and pressures that affect other journalists. And that leads to, to my last point, number nine. Um, as J.I. Packer, a great theologian, summed up the Bible's teaching, God saves sinners. And that's really important. Uh, God is not saving good people or wonderful people or holy people. Uh, God saves sinners. And really, all world's reporting and writing is based on the understanding that, that God is holy, we are sinners. Christ's sacrifice bridges the gap. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, but the streets proclaim, his, proclaim the sinfulness of man. Uh, so biblical journalism emphasizes God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And we try to do this. Again, being very careful not to, not to mischaracterize or abuse or or think of our opponents as, as forever enemies because some of the people, this is the week of the pro-life march here, some of the strongest pro-life people were people who were formerly abortionists or proclaimers of abortion. So um, God saves sinners. And we try, to, we try to show this in our reporting in the world. And uh, we have a podcast, uh, the, uh, uh, the World and Everything in It, that I recommend to you all uh, if you're walking your dog or doing stuff like that. Um, we have actually, we, we are starting some podcast series right now, and, and, and since Rob mentioned uh, the, uh, my, my writing on compassion and poverty fighting, our, we have a series right now, a podcast series called Effective Compassion that's going on it's about 12 episodes, and I think episode four this week actually deals with the changes in Washington back in the 1990s and so forth. So if you want to gain a little bit of history, uh, take, a, take a listen to that. It's about uh, 
20 or 25 minutes each episode, and you just put in uh, uh, effective compassion, put in the world and everything in it, and you can listen to our podcast. And then we also have just uh, our World Journalism Institute for college students and people in up to age 30 or so. We have that in the summer. And then, and then the, thing, the thing that I've enormously enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed my teaching at the University of Texas for all those years, but you know, when you see people for three hours a week for 15 weeks, it doesn't have the intensity and you don't really get to know the people in a classroom. So we have, uh, we've done it 11 times now. We have our mid-career course that my wife and I teach in our living room uh, in Austin for up to, for, well, just 10 people each time. Uh, and we have a very intensive week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 8.30 in the morning until late at night. And then Sunday, people really do need a day of rest. And that is, and then we, we go again on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And um, it's, been, it's been really the best teaching experience of my life because we really get to know the people. They're in our house and so forth. And then uh, a whole bunch of them become correspondents for World, and then some of them go and become reporters or other things on the paper. These are usually people in their 40s who are very successful in their occupations but are bored at that point and want to do either they're bored or they, you know, they, they just uh, want, to, want to serve God in a different way. So if any of you are interested in that, you can just look on, the, uh, on our website at uh, worldjournalisminstitute.org, WJI, or, uh, or worldjournalisminstitute.org. And uh, at that, I will now ostentatiously uh, show my humility by stopping and listening to your questions or comments. So thank you all very much. Marvin, thank you so much. Uh, again, I encourage you to pick up a copy of the book uh, in, uh, in the lobby. Uh, we're going to take questions. I have a couple that I wanted to ask you, and I, I want to pick up uh, right where you, you left off there at the end, uh, specifically when it comes to the next generation of, of journalists. Uh, you obviously have, have devoted yourself to, to this uh, particular uh, endeavor to make sure that they're better prepared um, as they enter the world. We also live at a time when it seems trust in institutions has reached significant lows, historic lows, and journalism is no exception to that. So uh, two-part question, uh, do you see that ever changing? Do you see that, that faith or, or trust in journalism ever increasing back to the level it may have been in the past? And what is your message as you send people out into the world, uh, either whether they're in their, their mid-40s or whether they're uh, coming out of college, uh, to, to do a better job uh, in their own careers? And you probably yeah. need to Yeah. <clears throat> you asked, Will, Will this ever change? Ever is a very long time. Uh, will, it, will it change in any relatively short period of time, like the next several decades? Uh, I'm hopeful. Don't expect it. But I'm, I'll tell you, I'm hopeful because um, we've had other situations where journalists, trust in journalists was almost non-existent, and journalism popped back. Uh, just give you one example, and, and I've written a couple of books on, on early journalism history. Um, journalists back in the, uh, in the 1600s and 1700s were, were uh, early 1700s, were really hacks completely. I mean, they were basically, uh, their, their job description was basically to do public relations for the king or the royal governor, let's say, when you come here in the, uh, in the colonies. No one expected that you'd actually read anything truthful there. It was, it was public relations, pure and simple. Um, in the 1730s in New York, there was a fellow named uh, John Peter Zenger who decided to tell the truth, and he was in the uh, Dutch Reformed churches there. He, on Sunday, uh, he learned, of, he heard about telling the truth, and he didn't want to do, some, do something different the next day. 
So he started telling the truth about a royal governor named William Cosby, governor of New York, who, uh, among other things, stole land from the Indians, stole sheep from very settlers, just a thoroughly nasty guy, and he, and he told the truth about this guy, and of course was thrown right into jail uh, because he was breaking the law at that point. The uh, both custom and law at that point was the journalist's job was to was to make the king or the royal governor look good, not tell the truth. Uh, Zenger stuck with it. He spent uh, about uh, eight months or so in uh, in prison. Uh, then there was a trial, and at the trial, his lawyer, uh, a fellow named uh, Andrew Hamilton from Philadelphia, uh, proclaimed that the jury should become what later in legal parlance became a runaway jury. Regardless of what the law said, uh, Hamilton talked about how uh, uh, Elijah in the Bible spoke truth to power in Ahab, and other people did the same, and John Peter Zenger was doing the same to this vile governor, Bill Cosby, uh, and uh, thus should not uh, be in prison. The jury became a runaway jury. Uh, they, they took their own liberty in their, in their hands by saying, not guilty, not guilty. And then when asked by the uh, chief justice, the justice who was presiding, how can you say that? They just kept saying, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, because if they gave a reason, then they would be in direct obstacle opposition to the law. That changed the, that started to change the opinion of, started to change journalistic practice. After that, there were no journalists in the colonies uh, sued for a libel by the royal governor or others in that way. Uh, Forty years later, you had an American Revolution led by a journalist, a failed brewer, but a very good journalist named Samuel Adams. And he had total trust uh, by the people in Boston, the Sons of Liberty and others, because they, they saw him not as the, as the hack, uh, but someone who told the truth. There was an enormous change at that point. Journalism was in very high repute uh, from the colonial period uh, uh, for the next few decades started to change back a little bit in the 1850s, popped back somewhat in the, in the 19, early 1900s when there were muckrakers who mucked rake, but nevertheless were, were looked upon as, as honest people, and, and generally they were. So you've seen this roller coaster all the time, so I can't predict when this will pop back, but if there are more journalists who become known for telling the truth rather than, and, and sprinkling salt rather than sugar, then I think that could happen. Let's see what's on your minds. I have other questions uh, that I'd like to ask. Uh, we'll start in the back with, uh, with Joe. And please introduce yourself and any organization you might be affiliated with. Hi, I'm Joe Stars from the Fund for American Studies. I run our journalism program there. Marvin, I wanted to get your opinion on what you think of uh, undergraduate journalism schools uh, and um, what advice you give to, to students who want to study journalism. And also, I'm just curious, uh, of secular publications out there, are there any that you admire uh, and you think are doing a, a decent job now? Let me deal with that last question first. Um, you know, we have, uh, at World, we have, we have lots of fans, and sometimes they'll write me or come up and say to me, oh, I love World, I love your podcast, uh, it's the only thing I read or it's the only thing I listen to. Uh, and my response to that is, is a little bit of horror. Uh, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad they, they, they like it, but uh, no, I, I, I suggest no. I'm glad you read it, but you should read some other things too. And my recommendation, I mean, I used to say uh, you, should read, you, should, you should read the New York Times or the Washington Post. I don't do that anymore because it's become just so propagandistic. I mean, it, all, it, it was, but in a, uh, in a mild way, now it's just over the top. Uh, the liberal publication that I recommend is The Atlantic um, because... You know, it's, it's, it, it's coming from certainly a different worldview and a different political philosophy, but they're good writers. 
they're good reporters, um, and uh, you know I know some of them, and, and they're and they're good people, even though we disagree on this. So that's my my usual thing these days. Yes, read World, but read the Atlantic also, and it's also uh, the, uh, you can read it on the website and so forth. Um, as far as the journalism schools, um, I started teaching journalism at the University of Texas in 1983, uh, and even though. I mean, they knew, I mean, I, I was very explicit about this. I mean, they, they knew I'm coming from a Christian perspective. Uh, you know, they thought that was okay uh, because they actually, I, was, I had been a reporter. Uh, I could speak that language and I could understand, and I, and I was on the side of, of journalism and reporters. I wasn't calling them enemies in that way, even when we disagreed. Um, what happened over the years, and, oh, and, and at that point, the University of Texas Journalism School the professors were mainly old reporters, old liberal reporters, Texas liberal reporters, which always made them interesting and cranky, but, uh, but you know, I, I enjoyed them, and, and they tolerated me. Um, that's changed, that changed over the years, so that when I left there in, uh, in 2008 um, and, and, you know, relinquished my tenure, which, which amazed and horrified some people, but it was, it was a really good decision. It's uh, over the past dozen years, teaching is... A, with, with World Journalism Institute is much better. Um, by the time I left, a lot of the professors were uh, Marxist, either hard or soft Marxist, who really had no journalism experience. They had PhDs in mass communications, and they knew theory in my, in my opinion, kind of a twisted way, but, but they didn't know journalism. Uh, there, was, there were still a couple who actually had been reporters and, and really believed in writing and reporting and getting out and not sucking our thumbs and turning out our, our, uh, our great propagandistic pieces. But mostly, um, it was just pretty bad. Uh, so it was no fun anymore. I, I don't know if that's the way. I don't know intimately any other uh, secular journalism program. I wouldn't be surprised if similar things have happened, have happened elsewhere. Um, so yeah, what I recommend for, for journalism education, again, these are are Christian places I know, which is not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, the Patrick Henry College in Virginia, you know, about an hour west of here, uh, has some good journalism teaching by one of my one student whose whose dissertation I supervised, Les Sellers. Uh, Dort College in Iowa has good journalism teaching by our, our former Washington bureau chief, who's, who, as journalists tend to do, you get tired of it after a while and you go teach. Um, and uh, you know, I could recommend a couple of others, but those those are the those are the two I like best. But it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for students. Let's go here, and then we'll come over to this side. Uh, I'm, uh, there's the mic. Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, Reverend Michael Langer. I uh, represent Ministry to State. It's the PCA's denominational ministry here in D.C. Okay. So I have two questions. They're interconnected. Uh, Yuval Levin just came out with a book uh, talking about institutions and how they've kind of moved to platforms. And, you know, the, the negative impact that that has had in people's perceptions of the benefits of an institution being formative and now preformative. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but then when you mentioned the fact that you came to Christianity through communism, I was thinking about how Douglas Hyde mm -hmm. uh, eventually left Christianity because he became disillusioned with its ability to affect the change that he wanted. And how do you fight against that um, at a Christian publication? It's interesting. You know, I read Hyde's book, which he wrote when he was a Christian. 
I, and I, I'm not familiar, actually, with his later experience. That's news to me. Did he write something about this or, or a book? I, he, when, uh, when I Believe came out to be, when I Believe was scheduled to be republished, he declined uh, allowing it to be republished because he said, I, I no longer adhere to that. Because if, as you wrote in Dedication and Leadership, he really felt like Christianity was was the way to affect the change that he wanted in the world and just didn't see it coming. Okay. Well, um, yeah, that's, that's sad to hear. Um, and, you know, we do have lots of biblical admonitions about do not become weary in doing good and so forth. Uh, that's sometimes when I, when I, you know, I tell my reporters. Uh, um, we have, uh, again, we're, we're, we're conservative uh, uh, but we differ from the conservative movement in some ways. We tend we tend to be pro-immigration and pro and pro-refugee. And uh, one of our one of our brilliant young reporters uh, has been covering this a lot. And I think she gets she gets weary. Um, and um, you know, just um, just got to keep at it. Uh, you know, I could I could go on a lot about the, about the platform question. And uh, it's really hard, by the way, these days in publishing books. Uh, I see publishers, including Christian publishers, it's no longer so much the quality of the book, but the quality of the platform you have, or perhaps the quantity. If you, and and uh, um, that's a mess in some ways. But uh, no, the um, um, things, things take a long time. I could, I'll tell you, um, flew in last night, and uh, just as coming from, uh, from Reagan Airport, and, you know, I mean, you all have this experience. You come in and, you, and you, you see brightly lit up. The same stuff there all the time, the big things, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the uh, uh, Washington Monument, the Capitol, and so forth. Uh, but people change. And so uh, last night, the uh, see, I, grew, I, basically, I grew up in Boston, basically grew up at Fenway Park, and spent so much time there that these days when I go back there, I feel as I'm walking along, let's say, through the tunnels and so forth, I feel like I'm going to go around the corner. I'm going to see myself when I was 10 years old. At that point, it's a weird sort of sensation of when I was 15 year old, years old. It's just that familiar, but that weird at the same time. Washington here, um, and the first time I ever spent any more than just a day here was in 1970 when I was 20 years old. And uh, this was, this was a, a big, big anti-Vietnam War demonstration. And the, 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 the most memorable thing there was that uh, the, we, we had a demonstration one day, and then on Monday we were all supposed to go and lobby our, our members of Congress and so forth. And so my roommates and I, at the end of the day, I hadn't had much success. We just went over to the house of the, the speaker, the, the office of the Speaker of the House at that time, John McCormick, who was from Massachusetts. And lo and behold, this was about 5.15, 5.30, the secretary let us in to see him. And we had actually uh, uh, a, a very enjoyable half hour. Just He, was, he, he just enjoyed, you know, here were these... These kids are coming, and I can just try to give them some wisdom. But at the end of that experience, he took us into the House chamber and said, and this, there were four of us there, and said, here's my chair that I sit in. I have to go now. I'm going to go now and have, have dinner with my wife, because I never missed dinner with my wife, which I found out actually was true. But here, take this chair, and you can spin around in a little bit and enjoy that. And we all did. Uh, so you know, we, we, were, we, we thought of ourselves as revolutionaries, but we were, we were little kids there among the chair. And that's the way I think we all tend to be. We get tired of things. We may not have as long an attention span as needed. Uh, I've been, 
I wrote a book on the, on the history of abortion back in 1992, and I'm, I'm updating that now. So I've just been reading about some of the people who have been in the pro-life movement for 40 years. And uh, on Friday at the march, my wife and I will, will actually be walking with a couple of people who have been there all that time and, and do something for our podcast. Um, that it takes in, incredible patience and resolve and an enormous frustration just sticking out a year after year after year. So that's all I can, I mean, it is, a, it is a grace of God to be able to, to do that. Um, you know, back when I, well, I could, I could go on this way. The, my, uh, uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just impressed. As a, as a journalist, I tend to have a, uh, uh, a medium-sized attention span, which means I don't want to spend my whole life on one issue. But I'm impressed with people in the pro-life movement who have done that. I'm impressed with, uh, with Bob Rector here, who's, who's done the welfare stuff for decades. Uh, that's, that's really incredible perseverance. And I think it requires that type of patience as opposed to the idea of, well, we're just going to find a platform, we're going to sell some books, and, and go on with my life. I, I admire the people with real stick to and it's a grace of God. Thank you. Let's go uh, up front, the second row, please. Hi, um, Michael Leeser with the uh, Charlemagne Institute and former world correspondent. Right. Um, several years ago, you developed several periodicals for um, younger readers. Could you explain the rationale behind that? Periodicals for younger? For younger uh, readers. Oh, yeah, world readers. Uh, actually, that, that preceded world. Uh, that started in about 1980 by Joel Bells because the... Uh, how many of you, uh, in, in, when you were in elementary school, uh, saw a publication called The Weekly Reader? Okay, a bunch of people. Yeah, uh, Joel wanted to set up something that was a Christian alternative to The Weekly Reader. I grew up in The Weekly Reader, not that it was evil, but he was hoping for something more. And uh, yeah, that's, that's he set up to, to serve that purpose. And uh, still going after all these years, and we'll start doing some videos, I think, this fall for use in Christian school classrooms. So uh, yeah, still there. Uh, when World started out, it was losing money like crazy, and the kids' papers were making money, and so that worked out, and now it's somewhat the other way around. Not make, World is not making money like crazy, but, but we, are, we do have maybe $1 or $2 left at the end of the year. Papa dollar and mama dollar, and we try to, we're trying to breathe. So anyway, so that, but that's, yeah, that's part of, part of the enterprise, to, to try to help kids develop a news habit. So. Let's go over to that side next. Uh, Greg Piper with College Fix. I interviewed you 20 years ago as a college journalist, so it's nice to see you again. Um, I want to ask you about business models because it seems like a lot of the problems in journalism is simply the way that you make money on it. It does not produce good journalism. What what do you see as kind of a path forward? What are some that maybe people don't think as much about? Oh, yeah, journalism in the United States has had many different models. Uh, originally, you'd see newspapers, say, in the 1700s or the 1800s, they would be funded by a board of of they didn't call them subscribers at the time, but patrons and so forth. Then it became an advertising-based model. You got circulation to be able to sell those people to the ads. It's returning right now, really, to, to the earlier model of uh, donors, funders, uh, nonprofit organizations, very often. Uh, and um, yeah, the, the publications that don't have, uh, that don't even either have one big sugar daddy or a lot of small ones are in trouble. And the big sugar daddy has its own state of its own sense of problems. I mean, with Bezos and the Washington Post and so forth, that's that's trouble. Much better to have a widely diversified uh, group of donors, and that's that's basically what, what World is doing now. We actually have 
we have more money coming in from donations than from subscriptions or advertising or anything like that. And that's actually what I'm recommending to people. There are, there are two people who have graduated from, from our World Journalism Institute who are now, uh, who have set up their own publications. One in a small city in California and one trying to make it in a big city in Austin providing alternative. And uh, yeah, I believe they are, they are uh, either in or will be moving towards a nonprofit model with, with donors. And if you have lots of donors, then you are, you are free from having to the entangling alliance of having to follow what one particular person or small group of people is saying. So that's our goal, to have, to have diversified giving. But that means you have to show people in the community that's worth doing, it's worth supporting. And, and you now hear on our world and everything in it, you will, you will hear, you know, listener supported on world radio. And in a way, NPR is our model, except, except we, I mean, NPR is mostly listener supported, some government money still. And they do such a first class job of what they do from their worldview that we try the world and everything in it. If you listen to it, it's, it's, it's NPR-like as opposed to sort of talk jock AM or kind of Christian radio as such. Marvin, if I could just ask a follow-up sure. to that, and then we'll, we'll go down here. Um, certainly, the, the Daily Signal has a similar model, and so is the Heritage Foundation. Right. Our, our broad base of, of yeah. support allows us to you know, have that financial independence to do the policy research, but also the reporting on those tough issues. Um, the, my question for you is, uh, you have been editor-in-chief long enough to see the, the changes in terms of distribution of, of the content. Social media obviously plays a big, much bigger role, a significant role today. Um, how have you been able to adapt, and as you said in your, your talk, grow world um, in, this, in this time when it seems that many legacy news organizations are struggling? Yeah, good question. And uh, yeah, I'm not very good at it. Um, um, you know, I'm... I'm thinking of when I came to Washington as a, as a young guy, now I'm an old guy now, and I am just behind the curve. Uh, I was, uh, um, yesterday I was uh, talking with one of our, our World Journalism Mystery people and saying, hey, I looked at Facebook, and we really need to refresh that. It's a little old, the stuff we have there. Uh, and, you know, we have people applying for this, college students, and they look at Facebook, they need to see it on Facebook. And he said, no. I mean, yeah, we still have our Facebook thing. That's not, that's not most of what we do. And then he gave me the names of a couple other things that, you know, some things I have heard of, like Instagram and so forth. And then there was one I hadn't heard of. So uh, what we do is we have, we have some young people who know stuff. Uh, uh, I, t I still tend to like uh, uh, email, which is, you know, the way God made it, as opposed to <laughs> something else. So, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, an, old, an old email fogey at this point. Um, there was another part of your... No, I just, I, I just wondered, you know, I, yeah, that, that, that satisfied me. All right, yes, all right. Let's go up to here, uh, and then we'll go on the, on the background. Al Milliken, AM Media. Uh, biblically, and as a Christian, how have you viewed and uh, covered the impeachment of uh, William Jefferson Clinton and now the impeachment of Donald John Trump? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting question and a, a question of enormous interest to... Uh, about 2,000 of our readers who, in 2016, sent me complaining letters. Um, we, we said, we said in, in 2016 that uh, we considered both um, our, current, our president and Hillary Clinton unfit to be president. And in saying that about Donald Trump, we were basically uh, saying that he just, he just had not shown the, the character uh, that we hoped a president would show. Uh, in his previous, 
existence. And also, you, you, you did not seem to be a person in careful control of his emotions, which also is useful to have in a, in a leader. Uh, and the other thing at that point, I'm actually, I'm actually surprised that, uh, that Trump has been as conservative as he has been. I really didn't, didn't expect that either. So, so basically, we, we said they're, they're both unfit. We had uh, one cover with Hillary Clinton with the, uh, uh, the Grim Reaper wearing a button on with her. Uh, and then we had another cover uh, concerning Trump. And we had a smaller inset picture of a cover we had done 20 years before on Bill Clinton. And basically, we had, we had thought that Clinton should resign from the office. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't all hep on impeaching him as such, because you know, depending on what it, the definition of impeachment, but we hoped he would, he would do an honorable thing and, and, and resign from office. And we figured that since we did that with a, with a Democrat, uh, we should try to apply the same standard to Donald Trump. And he did not show the character either. Now, that was then, and I, as you can imagine, I got uh, about 2,000 angry letters from our subscribers, and we lost some subscriptions, we lost some advertising. But this is something uh, everyone in our staff, uh, uh, well, I mean, I, yeah, we, we, all, we all discussed this a lot, agreed with it, and uh, we have a, a wonderful publisher who knew the cost and, and said, yeah, go for it, and we did. Um, I still feel that at a micro level, Donald Trump is unfit to be president, just in terms of, of uh, I mean, not so much current character questions, but just the way he reacts to things and, uh, and you know, from what, from what people who, uh, who know some things know about just his, his decision-making process. Uh, but that's at a micro level. And I, I tend to, in my mind now, and I haven't written about this, so uh, I'm still thinking it through, but, uh, but here's, here's where I'm going. You know, there's the distinction between microeconomics and macroeconomics, which is a very useful distinction. In talking about something like evolution, people make a distinction between microevolution and macroevolution. That's also a useful distinction. Um, in, my, in my view, Trump, Trump remains micro-unfit. But macro, again, with, there are some differences we, we have with him. I'm speaking, I think, for others at world as well as myself. But, uh, but overall, he's doing a pretty decent job uh, in a very tough environment. So uh, this leaves me in uh, uh, a, a certain uh, uh, pit of, di of difficulty. Uh, what we're doing is we're not making any cosmic pronouncements. We're going issue by issue, report by report. And we've probably been about 50-50 uh, about uh, on Trump. We're not, we're not part of, of, uh, of, of, of the cheerleading. We're also not part of the, of the rampant uh, and vicious attacking that goes on. Uh, yeah, it is a very hard job. He's the president of all of us. We respect him as president. Uh, we, insofar as the president's chief job these days is in some ways to be nominator in chief, uh, he's done a good job of that, not only in the Supreme Court, but throughout the judicial system. So he's achieved a lot. Uh, some of the regulations that he's gotten rid of are, are ones that deserve to be buried. So, um, yeah, we're just, we, just, we just want to continue reporting actions primarily not just words, uh, praising uh, a lot of the good actions he's had, and whether we'll make any, or whether I'll make any general statement, I'm still not quite sure. But uh, it's, 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 a, it's a tough situation. Uh, I'm certainly not, I never was, and I still am not part of the Never Trumpers, because just like ever is a long time, never is a long time. Um, so, you know, and the, and the people who get, uh, who, who think that 
the people who, uh, there's, there's one uh, Christian leader who's referred to Donald Trump as the greatest Christian president ever. I disagree with that. Uh, I also disagree with people who say he's the worst president ever. So we've had, we've had a, lot of, a lot of far worse ones. Uh, and, and I kind of uh, uh, enjoy, in a way. Uh, one of the things you have here in Washington, you have a front row seat at the circus, which is, all, which is fun being a journalist. And, and I kind of enjoy these days Trump's, Trump's tweeting. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm not giving you a good answer. You can see I'm staggering around here. How, what would you say, since you asked the question? I'm curious as to you what you're... Well, I was a never-Trumper, but I, I think I, yeah, I was a never-Trumper who now thinks I agree with much of what, with what he's done. But, uh, yeah, I also believe he really isn't morally or temperamentally fit for the presidency. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem is yeah, that... I, yeah, the, that yeah, basically, we just felt that we that world. I mean, I felt, and 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 our other people, editorial people, world felt that that as a magazine, we needed to be even-handed, basically. Uh, so we didn't tell people uh, who to vote for, and I certainly did not tell anyone who voted for Trump. I I did not say you're wrong to do that. I think it's a mistake to to be, again, calling calling him the greatest Christian president, but. It was a very hard decision for people to make, and it'll be actually maybe not as hard a decision this time since the Democratic Party has moved so far to the left. Uh, but depending on who they nominate, uh, I think it's quite likely that they, that they will nominate a person who is certainly macro unfit to be president, and perhaps micro as well. Um, but the problem, the problem really is the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court has just taken so much power unto itself that, that the nominator-in-chief position is a, is a really crucial position. So anyway, I'm troubled by this. I suspect some number of you in this room are troubled by it. Um, you know, life is full of trouble, and uh, and it's part of it's part of realizing that this is a this is a world that is a a wonderful place, but it's full of sin, and we have to try to to walk our way through it without drowning. We'll take one final question, and then Marvin's going to uh, stay, and he'll sure. sign books um, afterward. Uh, uh, Virginia, Maggie, will be our Hi, my name's Maggie. I work at Heritage. So with social media, Twitter, Reddit, it seems like everybody has become a journalist. Do you see that as a boon or as a threat to traditional journal, um, journalism? Uh, that's a really good question uh, in a sense. You know, be careful of what you wish for or pray for. I mean, I grew up at a time when there was very little competition in journalism. Cities had monopoly newspapers, typically one newspaper. You had the three networks, but they were all you know, pretty much the same in their and their you know, soft liberalism and so forth, uh, not, not overt, but certainly it was there. And so, you know, I initially was very glad, and still am glad, to see this much greater diversity. It's wonderful that, you know, someone goes through World Journalism Institute and can, can become, if he wants to, you know, not just a reporter, but an entrepreneur, a publisher, an editor. And that's terrific. Uh, never before have we, have we had that opportunity in American journalism. I mean, the problem comes is, uh, is, is, you know, there really is so much fake news out there, uh, and um, at least in the in the old days, with with the with the uh, uh, swampish liberalism, uh, at least there was there was some there was some check on just putting out stuff that that was was absolutely totally factually untrue, and that check no longer exists because so many people are no longer reporters, but just. Um, um, people who take other stuff and retweet it and, and so forth. Uh, all sorts of lies just get passed around like crazy. So something lost and something gained. 
uh, we're overall, overall I still like it, but, I, but there are problems, and uh, problems among reporters. And that's why, that's why we, re we really try to stress that, you know, whether, and, the, and this, is, this is why I can enjoy reading The Atlantic, uh, because yeah, it's, a di it's a different worldview, but uh, uh, I see them as, as reporters and trying to tell the truth and not just be propagandists. Marvin, thanks for sharing with us your, your wisdom and advice on journalism. Uh, really uh, thoughtful um, book and your remarks today. We appreciate, we appreciate it. We appreciate your leadership of world. And uh, we thank you. Uh, we hope you'll come back to the Heritage Foundation in the future. Uh, please join me in thanking Marvin Olasky. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of the book, they're available right outside, and Marvin will stay, uh, stay up here on the stage uh, for, for signing them. And, yeah, and I'll be glad to talk with you even if you don't buy a copy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>